Hello and welcome to Surroundscapes, an audio and video podcast series featuring a diverse collection of interviews with thought leaders from around the world addressing the general subject of the future of business. This content is curated by Blue Sound Professional and focuses on the role of the oral and visual senses in creating unique, delightful and compelling experiences to stimulate business. This fourth series of Surroundscapes is focused on the future of music, and we're really looking at two areas of that. Firstly, new ways of how you create music, and secondly, how to properly monetize and value music in these changing times and in the world of digital downloads. So this episode is really about that second part of it, and I'd like to introduce Ryan Edwards from Ordu. Ryan is talking to us from London, and we'll talk about the whole concept of uh, licensing music in public places and how that can change. So welcome, Ryan. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being on, on the podcast. So let's start off by um, finding out a little bit about you. So can you tell us a little bit about your history and what led you into forming Ordu? Of course, yeah. So um I've spent my entire professional career in digital and data products. So headed up digital for Visa Europe, you know, the, one of the largest card payment providers, uh, worked in uh, mobile app space, worked in fintech businesses. So, and so everything, everything I've done, I've always been um, very focused, very obsessed with, with kind of the power of data, how data transfers and, and how it can be, be harnessed, um, you know, be it for Visa, we were looking at shopping patterns for retail clients and, and to better understand their customers or for, for apps, how you give um, a more personalized service for in the fintech space. I was working in a, a business that linked card payments to loyalty. So it made it easier to collect your payment rewards. And again, that was all because of data permissions. Um, and I always joke in a, in another life in my teens I was um, I was a recording artist I had a record deal here in the UK and we we actually had a top ten hit single um, and over the years over the the past kind of fifteen years at various points I've heard that that top ten single um, you know be it in a shop I actually heard it in a in a sports stadium once on the radio and and various different things and um, what I've seen over that time is my royalty statement diminished um and i couldn't really ever understand it and a few years ago i was in a, a very very large department store on uh, london's Oxford street you know the premier uh, shopping street in in london and, and probably most of europe and you know my song was playing and and i i just couldn't figure out how the royalty society you know the the performing rights organization here in the uk knew that my song was being broadcast there and then um and you know i knew that that department store would have a music license because it was a huge multinational department store and i kind of went away and i said well i wonder i wonder how it how they know because I, I, I can't figure it out all the all the data analysis and the the technologist in me said you know I, I don't i don't get it and actually i went away and i did some research to really really understand you know what the process is and um what I found was there is very little data to very little to no data actually about what's happening in what I would call real world premises here in the UK um, and quite literally around the world. Um, and it's for lots and lots of different reasons to do with historic licensing challenges, the source that music is played from and everything. And 
um, it became a bit of a personal mission at the time to say, well, how do you fix this? You know, it's the and the typical technologist in me to say, well, there's a problem. Technology, in my view, can can fix most things. Um, how, how do you do it? And I think I'd seen technologies like Shazam, like Alexa and Siri and voice recognition and all of these different methodologies. And I thought, well, couldn't you create a service, a really, really low cost service that monitors just monitors the music that's played you know so strips out the voices makes it gdpr secure because of course that's my my fintech history so security is the heart of, of, of everything that we, we thought of when we we're creating the business so, well, and then if you can monitor it and you can report it to the performing right organization then actually what they can do is have a better informed uh, data set for as they're making their payment distributions and of course we're talking about hundreds of millions, if not billions of pounds and dollars globally that's going around there. And um, and that, that's kind of how we got to this point, you know, and the, the business is just over two years old now. We have a, a very fantastic team of, um, you know, from a technology team in-house to, to sales and marketing people and uh, advisors and people all around the world now working on this combined mission to say, well, let's, let's plug that gap of missing data and make sure that actually, if if the dial moves by half a penny for a musician because it was a, a, a missed broadcast, then actually our, our mission, um, you know, is, is very true to what we're we're trying to achieve for everybody. I can certainly um, relate to your experiences as a musician because I I was a musician too and made records and had a similar sort of experience with the uh, with the royalties. Um, so my first question is, what happened to your band? What led you to? to uh, <laughs> Um, I, I think like so many bands, we, we had a bit of a lucky break. We were in the right time at the right place. We were an, an indie rock and roll band um, in the early 2000s. And it was just as that explosion was happening. And, um, you know, we were kind of gigging in and out of London and we got picked up by management and labels. And, and I always joke, you know, there's the infamous story in L.A. in the, in the 80s that, if you're a band that kind of dressed and looked like Guns and Roses, you could get a record deal without even, um, you know, without the, the A&R team even listening to you. And um, I, I think that was what happened. You know, there were so many bands like The Killers and Razorlight, and we we looked very much like that. And, and actually, when I when I look back, we certainly didn't work hard enough. You know, you were you were in our late teens, and there's lots lots of alcohol, and you get to go on the road and tour and meet your heroes and you don't really tend to take it that seriously. And, and, and looking back, actually, the, the bands that are, are still up there, even now that we're signing deals around the same time as us, were the guys that were super, super studious in everything that they did, very, very controlled. And, um, and yeah, so it, it, will, it will always be my, my story to tell maybe the grandkids one day that, you know, that granddad was, was, was a rock and roll star for about a year. But uh, that, I think that's unfortunately where the story ends. <laughs> Yep, yep. Very much like me, except I was a folk rock musician, so I was never going to be really famous. Anyway, um, you you mentioned about the royalty process. So, so how is that done now? How do the PROs, performing rights organisations, know who to pay? So, if you look at them. Um... You'll typically see they they pay across kind of four key categories when you look at performing right organisation other setup. So, first one is international. So, um, really easy example: if Ed Sheeran's music is played in the US, then the US PRO owes the UK PRO, and then the money 
flows, flows through to Ed. So it's quite a simple process. The second one is broadcast. So TV and radio. Um, and again, that's well catered for, you know, if something is played on a popular TV channel, um, you know, or Sky service, then again, that's reported and the money goes back. The third one um, is what most PROs will call digital or DSP, so a digital service provider like Spotify, Apple Music. Again, they know exactly what's been played at that period of time, so it's very easy to capture. And actually, the bit where we've really focused as a business is, is what we believe is the biggest unknown is, is called public performance. And public performance is, is a really open area. And that can be everything from your local hairdressers to a multinational supermarket, retailer, to a large live venue. And what's traditionally happened is the performing right organization will have a very small sample set of, of public performance areas where they'll say to them, can you report what's been played? Or they'll work with um, businesses like what, what I would call a playlist provider. So a commercial business that goes in and provides music on behalf of the premises. And they will have a very good reporting system. And they will look at that in a very, very small sample. They will overlay everything that's helped else that they have by the way of data. So that radio, TV, international data and apply statistical analysis to it. So if you are that one artist that, always misses the radio play, always misses the broadcast, but it's actually, you know, played almost on a daily or weekly basis in lots of these public performance areas. There is a high degree of certainty that you will never be paid a penny for the rebroadcast of your work. Um, you know, and, and, and while it's very hard to capture literally millions of premises around the world, actually we're, we're, we are living and, you know, in the biggest digital revolution of a, a well, biggest revolution that is course is digital of, of a generation and and this is the opportunity you know for a business like ours to better enable pros to say hey you are amazing at what you do you you get artists paid and if it wasn't for you you know for the last hundred years nobody would have been paid however we can give you the data to now get right down to the minute detail that you know the exact artist paid every single time so I, I've heard um, people say in the past that a lot of the PROs pay by um, physical media sales. So, mm. you know, like if Fleetwood Mac, for example, sold 1% of all CDs bought, then they get 1% of the the rights. Is is there any of that still going on? or I, Yeah, and I, I think the, the challenge that a lot of the, the, you know, the music industry and everybody has is, it's it's hard to know because it's almost a closely guarded secret, and I don't think it's in a, a you know a statistical way where they're they're trying to hide it and saying we're not telling anybody what's happening, but you know it has been hard. So so your example is is exactly right. If you know traditionally they you know let's say they were missing some report, but they could see Fleetwood Mac had had a particularly strong week selling their latest version of their greatest hits, and it is genuinely one percent of all UK sales. Then actually you can understand why they would apply that analogy and that process to it um, but the challenge is every single pro around the world has their own statistical analysis engine and their own way of distributing so actually what you see and, and you look at royalties globally i think it was 2019 55 billion dollars worth of royalties were distributing globally so you then accredit that to 
every PRO in every market. And of course, there's never one. You know, here in the UK, we have two. We have PRS and PPL. In the US, there's four. In France, there's one. In Australia, there's two. There's so many different ones. And you think all of these layers sitting on top of different ways that they're approaching the data and the distribution, it is, it's near impossible to get to a standard, um, a data standard for this happened here. It equates to X. And that's what should be paid to the artist. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, yeah, I also, um, your number one international, Ed Sheeran being played in the US, your example, <laughs> yeah. that's presupposing that the US has a better data collection service and can tell that Ed Sheeran's being played. So I presume that your your solution kind of would cover one as well as four in, in these um, in these buckets that you talked about but before you go much further i should actually ask you to explain what ordu is and how you solve that problem of course so we're we're a technology business and we we provide um really three parts to the puzzle so the first one is a is a piece of hardware and we call it an audio meter and it's a really small piece of hardware it looks um almost like a nightlight it's that kind of small you know in a child's bedroom and in there there's a series of microphones and inputs for us to capture the audio that's going on you know in the background so you can pick out the music and what we do on the actual device is we use a a gdp secure algorithm which we've developed in-house which is the second part of our technology so we capture the sound that's happening we strip out all of the voices all of the background noise everything that's going on and we create what we call a digital fingerprint so, um, and, and the digital fingerprint is essentially of the music that we're hearing. We then have a cloud system, which has got in excess of 60 million songs stored within it. So essentially any song that you would find on, a, on one of the DSP providers, Spotify, Apple Music, Deezer, et cetera. We have those in our library and our database with all of the relevant metadata tags. And we fingerprinted them in the library as well. So what we do is we match the audio fingerprint that we've captured in a secure way, anonymized, with our library of music. And from there, we're able to create and generate a report to say, great, we know, and I'll stick with the Ed Sheeran example because <laughs> you mentioned it, and, and, and so have I, and say, well, we know that it was this Ed Sheeran song at this time, this date, this location um, that, that, that it was broadcast. That then goes into a master report, and each performing right organization around the world that we're working with will receive a copy of the report in relation to the repertoire that they license. So then they're able to make their distribution. Um, and that's us as a business. So say we're a technology business that provides that that service and that data into each PRO. Okay. That, that's, uh, that makes a lot of sense. So, so my, I suppose my first question is that there are services like Shazam and SoundHound and people that do that same music identification bit. Um, yeah. just but for your own personal kind of so you can tell what track you've been listening to <laughs> why don't they do something like this yeah so when I started the business I did a lot of research to really understand you know how Shazam worked and Soundhound and, and, and many many others and, and I'll use Shazam as the as the particular example because it's probably the most foreknown um, globally mm-hmm. and when you are on a on a you know, a, a mobile phone and you go into Sh- the Shazam app and you say, tell me what this track is because I'm in a restaurant and I really like it. Um, you are essentially activating your microphone and you are giving them the permission 
essentially to record the room and 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 work out what it is on your behalf. It's a user permission led um, interaction. With ours, we had to start actually the opposite end of the sale, um, almost a bit like like a CCTV service, you know, in, in security to say, well, look, if you're walking into a shop or a restaurant, you you as a customer or a consumer are giving no permission for anybody really to track you or understand you, despite I think what we all believe about Facebook or listening devices or what they think they they can and can't see. It's a completely anonymized service. So we had to start and say, okay, I cannot record anybody's personal conversation or, or private conversation because it's their private conversation. And actually we don't want to, it's a whole, it's a whole different kind of worms that, that we would be opening with that. So we had to start and say, well, how do you strip it all out? And, and the second thing we then did was looked at voice recognition technology. And again, if you look at say an Alexa or a Siri or any of those, um, those services, what they do of course is listen to a room as a whole and they try to pinpoint a voice um, very distinctively so it, it can collect that command and, and of course trigger the, the software um, chain off the back of that. We do the opposite. We, we try to listen to the background noise, strip out all of the front voices and recognize the music, the audio that's in there. And that's why our service is different. Why Shazam and, um, and others aren't doing it, I think it's because fundamentally we have approached the techniques to, to our audio algorithm in a completely different way. Um, you know, and everything that we do is of course based on this audio meter, which is a multi-input device. We also use um, uh, what we call an array of microphones. So we have multiple microphones sat within the audio meter itself. So it means that we're getting split second um, sound um, reflections as it's going in and we have to quantize and pull all of those parts together as well. So it's a little more complex in what we're doing. Um, and, and yeah, a very, very different, um, much more kind of B2B commercial service that we, we provide. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um... So a thought came to mind when you were talking about that. What happens with um, spoken word tracks? How does that? Yeah. So, <laughs> so what? Because what we're doing is we're looking for fingerprints um, and, and a matching system. When when we create the audio filing device and we try to eliminate what we would describe as obvious background noise. So, you know, if it's a coffee shop, a coffee steaming, and we would, we would hear those lookalike patterns. So, you know, whether it's footsteps, whether it's, you know, continual, same, same level of decibels off a coffee steamer, all of those kind of bits. Mm -hmm. Once the fingerprint is, is created, as long as if it's a, you know, a, a spoken word part of a, a musical piece or, you know, say an acapella track, actually the fingerprint should still match um, and we get a really, really high recognition piece on that. So, yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Um, I have, I'm, I'm going to ask one, one question. I want to kind of go on with what you were saying, but one thing came to mind um, about how people are paid. And I think I'll ask it now, although it's a little bit out of context, which is, I was having a conversation with a guy called Frankie Tan, Tan who um, who formed a, a company called AuraStream in Singapore, and uh, it's a lossless compression algorithm, kind of variable bit rate um, sampling system. Um, but what we were talking about was classical music, and um, the fact that classical music is are long tracks so a symphony can be 
you know, 45 minutes. And the concept of how do those musicians get paid? So if it's just like a track, a pop track can be three minutes. Yeah. You know, kind of famously a three minute single. Of course. Yeah. Always. (laughs) If if you're a, uh, if you're an orchestra, it can be 45 minutes. Do you get paid the same amount? Yeah. How do you, how do you work that out? Is there a, is there a duration element to all of this? So, um, yes yeah i guess yes and no so what what we are seeing in many of the pros and spotify and apple music and again many of the the dsps are a perfect example here so their rule as a dsp provider is if a song is played for 30 seconds or less then the artist is not paid so if you listen to 29 seconds of 100 songs today unfortunately for those artists you might have enjoyed their wonderful intros to their to their hard work, but they will never collect a penny from that. The second that you hit the 30-second mark on a song, then that triggers a payment, and all payments are, are equal. So as you say, whether it's a 45-minute symphony or the, the traditional three-minute, I guess, pop-punk song that you, that you would hear very commonly on radio, um, actually, it's the same level of distribution. That, that gets paid on that and you see that across all those channels so radio tv um public performance because essentially what they do is they take um the amount that is charged for the license you know per day per hour per minute um and then that is what the the the, the song is is paid against and that's how they do it so um and that's a traditional mechanic of of you know how how decrees of music um royalties and rights have been set up for a very very long time what we've done to ensure that artists, um, again, are, are fully recognised is because it's a fingerprinting solution that we've built and, and every song is unique. Um, every second of a song we have assigned a fingerprint to. So actually, if, if it was a symphony over 40 minutes and let's say we were checking every 10 to 15 to 20 seconds, we would know, you know, if the entire performance of that symphony was played if only 30 minutes are played and that and it may change over time you may see pro start to say well actually we know that 50 percent of the track was paid therefore it's a 50 percent payment or 75 percent or whatever the the percentages of the performance um sit behind there and of course the the challenge that you then have that sits even further behind it are things like covers so it's like mm-hmm. saying you know probably the most famous symphony in the world is beethoven's fifth symphony um, you know, is that the version by the U- the New York Philharmonic, the London Symphony Orchestra, the Birmingham Symphony Orchestra? Whose recording was it? And and this is where you get into the the two sides of of music. You know, the the traditional A and R artist and repertoire. Who is the writer? Who is the recording artist? And and it's knowing that. So, and this is why um, our fingerprinting methodology is 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 coming out so strong, and we're. Um, being embraced by so many of the performing rights organisations literally around the world, because actually not only can we say, yes, it certainly was Beethoven's fifth or, um, you know, Ed Sheeran's latest single, we know that it was this recording of it. So it was performed by the New York Philharmonic. It was performed by Taylor Swift covering Ed Sheeran, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, and that's a really important piece here that not only do we know who the writer is, but we know who the recording artist and which way that the royalty should be split for each. And also you're saying how much of it was played. So <laughs> what you're saying is if the back end of the industry changes how it's done and maybe pays people on duration 
yeah. that your capture device is, is ready to give them that to information. Absolutely. Yeah. It it, it may be a little bit of an uphill struggle to change that, though, on on the basis that (laughs) if you look in the US, I don't think the decrees of um, of royalties and publishing rights have changed since the 1920s. And in the UK, they were last looked at, I think it was the year 2001, which is pre iPod. So don't hold Mm -hmm. out too much hope. But um, yeah, we can we can live in a in an optimistic world. Yeah, I mean, yeah. There's there's so much about the industry that's that's broken that that we're probably you know we you and I can't solve here. But no. um, <laughs> but yeah, the the there's so much needs to change, but and and we can only solve you know individual bits of the of the problem. And I I totally get it. So the next question is really, you know, why. Who is your capture device interesting to, and what is the incentive for you know Joe's bar and cafe to put in an Audu device? Of course. So there's there's two sides. The the ultimate and absolute benefit is for the performing rights organisation because of course what they capture, you know, for the first time potentially in a hundred years is is actually what happened in the real world. And, and everything that we do, we also do, well, I say real time, we're within about three seconds globally, just you know, latency and servers to pick up and, and things like that. So they have that real time instantaneous data in the palm of their hands, which they've never had. The second side, and, and when you talk about jo, jo, you know, Joe's local bar or anything like that, when, when we first started this journey two years ago, um, you know, we, we did our first funding round. Of course, that attracts some interest from, from press, from the city, from journalists about, you know, who's this new business? Why are they raising money? Who and what are they doing? And of course, we went out and said, you know, and, and I think we probably made some very wild statements at the time and said, oh, um, you know, business owners, did you know if you're playing music in your local cafe that um, the music that you're playing, the artist may never get paid for that, even though you pay a music license, which was, of course, very flippant and very sweeping statements. And what we saw into our business was an influx of, um, you know, small to medium to even large sized businesses saying, look, I am absolutely horrified that I play this music all day and it may not go to my favorite artists. And I, I always cite and, and, and I just before we, we started this this recording. Um, uh, we, we you talked about that you you were um, from Ascot originally, and there was a lady. She was a florist in Ascot um, in England here, and she wrote to me. And she said, "I am obsessed with ABBA. ABBA are my favourite band. I have I have my own florist. ABBA are on repeat all day." She said, "I'm very worried that Bjorn and Benny aren't being paid." So of course it was it was a, a bit of a giggle, and of course I wrote back and said, "Look, Bjorn and Benny, they're okay. Don't worry. Financially, they're okay." <laughs> Don't worry. Um, and of course, where this then comes completely full circle is we raised our Series A investment round at the end of last year, 2020. And Bjorn is actually now one of our investors because he heard about the mission and wanted to support us. So it's funny how two years later, this you know, that story came full circle. And, um, you know, I've written back to that florist and said, I've got some even better news for you. Um, and, and she thinks it's fantastic. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure when we can all travel post-COVID world, I'll, um, we'll, we'll ask Bjorn maybe to send her a signed T-shirt. <laughs> Or something and it'll be a lovely way to to kind of wrap it up and we'll present it with an audio Lisa. Um, but I think what you'll see is um, we, we call it fit and forget for these commercial premises. So once the audio meter's in, you don't need to worry about it. 
at all. It's in there. It's doing its thing. It's making sure that the hard-earned money that you earn to, to pay for your music license is going to get back to the right person. Um, and actually, I, what I've always said, and, and you know, as a, as, as a business owner myself, you know, in, in, in this business and, and done other businesses as well, is there is there is there is always that responsibility as a business owner to make sure that you are doing, in, in my view, the right thing. So, are you paying the right commercial rates, the right level of tax, and and all of these kind of bits that you need to do as as a responsible business owner? And and I believe that the business community has always always stood up to that and and made sure that they support others as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just thinking the the uh, you could truly make that that woman's year by taking Bjorn in there (laughs) (laughs) of course no it's um it's and and it's it's it is it's so funny how these you know these little anecdotes come come throughout your life and it's and you know to me because you know I'm I'm my mid-30s so I'm I was too young forever but I mean I I grew up listening to it you know know, my parents my mum is a huge Abba fan you know always you know I remember dancing in our in our kitchen our living room as 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 a child with with my mum and my dad to Abba tracks so it is it is so funny how these these things come completely the whole way around and um and yeah and I think you know somebody said to me not long ago they said well but if you get this accuracy right and and Bjorn is still being paid particularly well from royalties this could decrease his royalty share he could he could earn less right now Mm -hmm. of course the joke is well Yes, Bjorn does okay. He's he's fine, but actually, I think what you see, um, particularly in these these you know historically massive artists, is a big responsibility for the next generation. Um, mm-hmm. I think I I know um, a business that did some analysis on Paul McCartney um, not long back, you know, and they were saying they were forecasting that they think over the past thirty five years that he has lost out on in excess of a billion pounds worth of royalties. So again, although I'm sure, you know, that that does, you know, and it does affect him financially, but it doesn't in the grand scheme of things, because, of course, he has extreme wealth. Actually, they're looking at this going, oh, my gosh, we did not get this right as a generation. This was not right for us at all. Um, You know, we've got to help others. And this this could be the matter of an artist being able to have a career and people enjoy their music, you know, because they're, you know, they might only ever be a small artist, but they might just be able to, to keep it and enjoy it to, to not to having to, to give up on their dream and, you know, go and work in their local bar or, or, or go into a completely different profession. You know, it may mean that they cannot physically make it because they just can't make money, which is, is pretty heartbreaking actually. It is, it is, and and you know, you and I are both trying to, to help musicians to to be able to make a living, particularly in these days where music is so devalued as as yep. a, an art form, where you know, ten bucks a month pays you gets you an all you could eat music buffet. Um, Completely. I think I think COVID has brought this to light even more. You know, you've gone from, you know, it was always it was always the joke when I was in my band that, you know, if we put our first single out, um, I don't know, I might buy a, a very nice Rolex watch and it, it would be a, a beautiful investment. But actually, if we toured for six months and we sold lots of merchandise, I could probably buy a Porsche or, or, you know, a house or something like that, because that was where the money was. So you've all of a sudden for the last 12 months ish seen artists completely grounded and they, they cannot get out there and make money in the traditional ways that they've made money, which is, which is a challenge for them. Um, so, so that, that's a, 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 you know, a crying shame in itself. And then the second side of course is what it's done is it made them go, well, 
where am I, where is my money coming from? And, and of course, an artist never thinks of revenue streams. They never think of product. You know, I always joke that, you know, the first thing I realized when I went into my professional career was, um, you know, from being an artist, actually my song was my product. You produced this, you created a song, you recorded it, you put it out and then you needed to keep marketing and keep selling it and keep getting people to listen to it and come to your concerts and all that. And, you know, with, with this level of spotlight going, well, if I can't earn money here, what is my royalty stream doing? Oh, I don't know because I don't understand where it comes from or who, et cetera, et cetera. All of a sudden that's become super, super important for these guys. It has, yeah. I mean, I, I've thought a lot about the fact that, that you know, throughout history, musicians have made money by performing and, and mm. selling she music. Yeah. In the last hundred years, we've had this other revenue stream, which is a recorded performance. And certainly in the like 70s and 80s, that was really a lot of what a band would make their money from. And tours would be almost advertising for the record or the CD. Whereas in more recent years, it's reversed, as you've said. Yeah. So the the record or CD is an advert for the tour where where the band makes their money on on, on ticket sales and merch, which is kind of back to the, the old days again. Yeah. Um, I don't know where it's going to settle out in this balance between recorded and, and live. But, but whatever it is, musicians need to be able to make a living. Otherwise, music won't get created and we exactly. won't be able to hear it. No. And, but, and I think um, that's it. And, and music is easier to make than ever. You know, I mean, you can, <laughs> you can produce a, you know, a, a studio quality album with I, I'm trying to think what the, the average price of an Apple laptop is now, maybe a thousand pounds. What's that? Twelve, thirteen hundred yeah. US dollars. You know, that's not yeah. a lot of money for a recording studio plus a microphone and a line in. So, could the creation of music is is more accessible than it's ever been. It's just the 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 monetization and the commercialization um, and being able to track that has become tougher than ever, which seems crazy because it should be it should be easier. Than, than ever yeah and i think it, that's an interesting point you bring up that we could talk for hours about because it, and it's the same in so many creative pursuits photography graphic design you know kind of painting you can get stuff out there writing uh, you can get stuff out there easier than ever but where's the incentive to really get good at something you know what you would do as a musician by gigging for 10 or 20 <sighs> years and really perfecting your art um totally but we probably shouldn't go far too far down that route. But <laughs> Definitely not. I actually want to ask you um, more before we we wrap up more about Audu and you know how how is it going and and who's buying your devices and what does the future look like for you? Of course. So um, the business has grown at an, an exponential rate. Something you know beyond my wildest dreams. You know, I'm sat here in my my home office, as, as I'm sure many people are in, in in you know these COVID times that we're we're going through at the moment. And you know, just over two and a half years ago, I was sat here thinking, right, I'm going to quit my job, I'm going to start a business, and you know, if I can maybe grow it to three or four people in a couple of years and get a bit of funding and and kind of keep going and grow organically from there. Um, wonderful. And, you know, I sit here today that uh, we've just 
advertise a, a, a series of new roles because we took a, a recent funding round. So we'll be 28 people um, by, wow. by the end of the month, which is, is insane. Um, we're launching products internationally in three territories. I, unfortunately, I can't say who publicly at the moment, um, but in every corner of the world within a matter of, of days and weeks now, just, just uh, on when each territory drops. Uh, and of course, it's the territories that are slightly more mobile because of COVID and, and, and things are happening. So um, that, that may give a slight hint to, to kind of the locations that we're going into. Um, and really, you know, the, the, the mission for us remains the same. Um, what's great about our technology and, and you know, where, where my history has come from, I remember the fintech business and, you know, we built this amazing technology that integrated with Visa and MasterCard, American Express, and it worked beautifully in Europe and everything was perfect. And we came and bought it to the US a few years ago and payments fundamentally worked different. You know, we had to rebuild 80, 90% of what we just invest, invested tens of million pounds into creating. Uh, so it was almost like a like a blank sheet of paper. What's great about or doing the audio meter and everything that we've created is a, you know, a whole infrastructure sits on a cloud system. So it's very scalable, very instantly, very quickly. Um, but you know, the audio meter, if, if I can get an audio meter to work in a bar here in London and, you know, take all that background noise and work out that, stick with the Ed Sheeran example, that it is that Ed Sheeran song. Well, actually, that's that's no different environment to, to LA, you know, bar, bar an American versus British accent. So, you know, audio algorithms and, and the mathematics that sit behind it don't really make any any difference to that. So mm. we are a business that can scale very globally, very, very quickly based on demand. Um, there are two challenges we have. You know, there are PROs that are out there that, you know, some of the guys that we're working with who are desperate to make change and have a positive impact for what they would define as members is what you and I would probably call, you know, recording artists and writers, and that, that's who they represent. Um, there are some who, who are a little different. They are stuck in their ways and they don't want to innovate because actually they've got a nice historic model that, that caters for, the, you know, the, their top half and it keeps them happy and it's quite easy. So desire is always, always a challenge when it comes to change and innovation and, and what we're doing. And I think what we've been very careful to do, I think if you look at the music industry historically, You've seen, you know, disruption, and and it's a word that that drives me insane because it was, the, you know, the the Napster, the LimeWire, the file sharing disruption into the streaming disruption, and actually, we've been very, you know, deliberate in positioning ourselves to say, guys, we are not here to disrupt, we're here to empower, we're here to give you the data to make sure you can pay your artists what once you've got that data that then goes into your engines into your analysis and everything that you do to make sure you've got all the right overlays and that it's a fair split and that everybody is is completely compensated correctly and to the best of your ability and and i think we found a niche in that you know we've surrounded ourselves with the best people in the music industry you know so we have rick riccobono who is the ex-vp of bmi you know one of the us us's largest pros we have chris herbert who is a legendary music manager and created that that little girl group called the spice girls you know and so he's been there he's done it he scratched his head as publishers and said why aren't we getting paid for this and you know we've got the ex-head of publishing and adam parnish from spotify you know helping us and supporting us and helping us grow as well ex um you know president of a and r for bmg and one of the biggest labels in the world and alexi corey smith so we are, we've surrounded ourselves by these these guys who 
just understand it. So at least when we go and sit in front of a PR and go, hey, guys, look, our proposition is really easy. We give you more data. And the more data you get in, the fairer and the better and the more accurate you can make your split. Oh, and we've got these guys who have completely got our back who are looking after you to make sure that, you know, as many startups do, don't don't go and do something stupid because you see them, you know, they suddenly get a little bit ahead of themselves and they then go and try and sell some data that they shouldn't sell or that they don't quite own or anything like that. And we're not in that position and we're being advised by quite literally the best people in the music business who who have been around, got far too many T-shirts, probably from far too many tours, um, but, you know, really understand it and have built up those relationships and those trusts to say, look, we're, we're here, we're making sure the guys are, are there. And of course, what underpins it is is just a brilliantly hardworking team. You know, we have... I handpicked them so I get to say it but you know the the best technology team in the world you know we have the, the best relationship managers we have a passion in our business you know it's very very rarely do I hear anything negative come out of the business even in this challenging year that we've had where everybody's been stuck at home actually the only the only moan that I get from the team is we just wish we were together you know we wish we could have had a Christmas party we wish we wish we could be sat in the office you know debating who gets to choose what's going to be on on the hi-fi system and you know who's who's got terrible disco taste in music versus cool rock or whatever and and, and we've created a really young passionate energetic team that uh, that is going to help drive you know what we call a, a royalty revolution or we're revolutionizing royalties with all of this as well excellent that's that's a that's great. And, and it's interesting. It's a very similar parallel to what we do at Blue Sound Professional, where we're just providing the hardware that allows people to, to uh, choose properly licensed music. And again, you're, you're providing the capture data that allows people to be properly paid. One really quick, quick final question is, in the future, how, how are people going to get access to your devices are they going to be supplied by the pros or are they the customers going to have to buy them themselves and you know, yes no so so our model is really simple you know we because we see the pros as getting the biggest benefit um you know we sit as a technology provider within their kind of operational and technology budgets and that's that's how we get paid as a business um, and we see that they get tied to the licenses so Typical licenses last 12 or 24 months when you buy one as a public performance area. So our, our aim, um, you know, and, and relationships with the PROs that we have today is, you know, we'll look at that kind of renewal um, process and roadmap that they go through every you know, year to two years. And they'll almost be coming to us to say, hey, this is the I don't know, 3,000 premises this month um, that, that will need one. Can you go out? And, and we will send an installer. Um, I say an installer. It's a very, very simple plug-in device. But we will still go and take on that responsibility because, again, we, we see that as, as something that we have to do. We'll make sure it's fitted, make sure it's working. And that's it. The, you know, the, the licensee never has to worry again. The PRO gets the data and it closes the loop for everybody. Right, that's that's great. So, one final clarification: I think I understand that it actually uses uh, cellular technology, so it doesn't link to the the you know the, the network in the premises. Is that right? Yeah, correct. Yeah. So we've um, on the actual audio meter itself, we we have what we call an eSIM, which is a, a chip built onto the onto the PCB, which to, to most people is like a chipboard that you would see in a in a phone or any piece of technology. And the reason that we did this is, you know, Wi-Fi for you know, trying to capture the world's Wi-Fi 
passwords <laughs> felt felt like a hell of a task um and actually you know this why should the business have to provide the wi-fi line for us to do this so so yeah, yeah. what what we've done is we've created relationships with all of the, the world's largest uh, mobile networks and particularly even more in the territories that we're operating in so when our engineer goes and, and installs the audio meter whichever has the strongest signal um you know because we know there are always dead zones with, with different um you know, mobile providers around the world um, that actually it picks up the strongest signal, it gets it, and and it sends that data back in a in a really precise, fast way to us. And um, and yeah, we we wanted to make sure the only thing that we were asking the licensee for was, you know, can we can we have a plug to plug it in, which um, we we felt wasn't too too obstructive for them. Yeah, yeah, and just to be clear to the listeners here, when when Ryan's talking about a plug, he means an an AC plug, so it just needs power. Um, yeah. So thanks very much, Ryan. Anyone who wants to know more about Ordu, which I hope many of you do, you can find them at Ordu, which is spelled A-U-D-O-O dot com. And you can find Ryan on LinkedIn, Ryan Edwards. He's very active on LinkedIn. So thanks again, Ryan. And thank you, everyone, for listening in. Please leave your comments on the podcast platform of your choice. Tell us what you like, what you don't like, who you'd like to see on the series, and please come back and listen to some more Surroundscapes very soon. Thanks again. <laughs>